Well, this is a new series today, and it's called From Death to Life. And as I said in my prayer, we're going to be looking uh, at the very end of Mark's gospel. We just have a few weeks left to cover all the details that he gives us about the final days of Jesus and his earthly ministry on this planet. And so we've seen a theme emerge. This is from death to life. And so today we're going to talk about shame a little bit. Uh, but I want to read a quote for you. I don't, I don't always do this, but when I was studying Mark's gospel, I have different commentaries that I read. And this one paragraph stood out to me that I want to read to you guys. I'm hearing a real bad echo. I don't know if there's anything you can do to to tone that down a little bit. Thank you. This is what James Edwards, who wrote a commentary on the, the Gospel of Mark, said. He said, The crucifixion of Jesus is narrated in the New Testament with utmost restraint and objectivity. There is no intention to exploit the savagery of crucifixion, either to sensationalize Jesus' death or to evoke sentimentality from the reader. Especially in Mark, the accent on the crucifixion narrative falls not on its brutality and cruelty, but on the shame and the mockery to which Jesus is subjected. As in the prayer of Gethsemane, so too at the crucifixion, the inner suffering supersedes the physical horror. Does that make sense to you? When you read the New Testament descriptions of the crucifixion, if you're looking for all these gory details about the nails and uh, just blood and Jesus is suspended naked up in the sky, you don't get a lot of gory details about that. In fact, it's rather astonishing if you look at what the Bible actually says. It's just very simple and it almost seems nondescript and and you see it in verse 24 here in chapter 15 check this out and they crucified him that's it and they crucified him just four simple words no fanfare no fireworks if you're wanting details and gore and violence you're not going to get it from mark because he is focusing on something else. In fact, a lot of the questions that you would think a reader might ask Mark, he doesn't answer. Uh, for example, uh, is crucifixion bad? He didn't answer that. Uh, does it kill you? Does it hurt? Does it last very long? You can do research uh, on the internet and find the answer to all those questions, but you don't really find those answered in the New Testament description of the crucifixion. Because Mark is not really after that. Mark is wanting to answer another question. Actually, he's going to answer three questions. And so the outline today is those three questions that he is going to answer. And here is the first one. Question number one. Did this really happen? Now, I know that may sound silly to you uh, because the answer is duh, <laughs> right? But really, if you probe a little bit deeper into people's faith, into the events that shape their life, give them meaning, assign value to them, uh, what they revolve their entire existence around. So often there's, there's no validity to it. You can't vet it. It's not legit. You can't check it or verify it. Um, Mark takes special attention and, and goes to great lengths to show us that this was actually uh, a historical event that happened. It really happened. 
In our, in our culture, we live in a, in a day and age right now where people question everything. Probably more than they ever had. In fact, things that we have probably assumed to be true for decades and maybe centuries, now people are starting to go all the way back and say, you know what, how do we know that anything is true? How can we know that anything is true? You find people, uh, for better or for worse, they feel empowered to do that, and that's why you have an anti-vaxxer movement. I'm not making a statement for or against that. I'm just saying the, the fact that people said, you know what, no, no, I'm not going to do what this doctor or that doctor says that I'm supposed to do because uh, this doctor and that doctor question it now, and they say, so I'm going to question it too. That's why you have people that are doomsday preppers. They say, I don't care how safe the government tells me that I am, I don't believe it. I'm going to take care of it myself. I'm going to question everything. So people question their safety. People question their health. Did you know that people actually question whether or not we landed on the moon in 1969? Did you know that? People question that. They're like convinced it didn't happen. It was staged. There's people that question whether the Holocaust happened. There's people that question whether or not 9-11 was an inside job or actually an outside job by terrorists in the Middle East. People question everything today. My wife and I even watched a documentary recently. It was a little bit entertaining. Uh, but people even question whether or not the Earth is a round sphere, a planet spinning on its axis, rotating around the sun. They question that. Now, if any of you do, look, I'm not ridiculing you. I'm just saying there's people like you out there, okay? <laughs> It's all about, you've got to verify it. You've got to vet it. It's got to be legit. This can't just be a hunch. If I'm going to shape my entire life and my existence around an event, I have to be able to vet it and to test it. And Mark knows that. Don't you love that about the Bible? The Bible welcomes scrutiny. Did you know that? There's a difference between being violently hostile and mocking and scoffing and ridiculing and actually having legitimate doubt and wanting your doubt to be answered. God welcomes that. God welcomes doubters. I mean, didn't Jesus welcome Thomas? He said, Thomas, come here. Put your finger. Put your finger here in my wound. See these scars and holes in my hands. And Thomas did. And we have one of the greatest affirmations of the deity of Christ in John's gospel through that. He said, my Lord and my God. Because he was a doubter that God welcomed. People doubt things. And the Bible understands that. And the Bible deals with that. This can't just be a quiver in your liver, Right? We have to really base our faith on something that really happened, not something that may have happened or that people speculate happened. It either happened or it didn't. And so Mark is not answering all the questions, all the curiosities we have about crucifixion. No, he is very careful and detailed. He spends much more time with places and people and names and times and colors. Why? Because this really happened. This is an historical event. This is not once upon a time in a galaxy far, far away. It's not. This is in the turn of the, the very beginning of the first century, a man named Jesus Christ was led outside the city gates and he was crucified between two robbers at a, at a place called Golgotha right after 600 soldiers in a battalion made fun of him and mocked him. And oh yeah, on the way there, they had to press into service a man named Simon from Cyrene. Why all these names and details? He could have just said Jesus was crucified and it was terrible and he did that for you. 
No, he gives us like colors. The soldiers mock Jesus. They put a scarlet or a, a, a purple robe on him, pressed down a crown of thorns on him, took a reed and beat him, punched him in the face, plucked his beard, spit in his face, and said, prophesy, who hit you? Why all those details? Because Mark wants you to know this is history. You can vet this. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15. Most scholars say 15 to 20 years after Jesus was crucified. Just 15 to 20 years, okay? And he, is, he, he says something to this effect, 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I deliver to you that which uh, is of first importance, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he was seen by Peter, by Cephas. He was seen by the other 12. And then he was seen by the apostle James. And then he was seen, the scripture says, by 500 other people who are still alive to this day, even though some of them have fallen asleep. And he was seen, last of all, by me, Paul, as one born out of due time. Now, what in the world is, is the Apostle Paul saying? That? Have you ever thought about this? Do you know what Paul's saying? He's saying, hey, look, Jesus rose from the grave 15 to 20 years ago. And there's people that saw it. And they're still alive. Go talk to them about it. They can verify it. They can vet it. If somebody is telling me to place my faith in an event that uh, the world mocks and ridicules, I want to vet it. I want it to be legit. I don't just want it to be a quiver in my liver. Mark goes to great lengths to show you this was a historical event. It really happened. There were people there who saw it. They were still alive when this was written that you could talk to them. In fact, this is really interesting. Check this out. Chapter 15, and when you get to verse 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Now, I've told you before, Mark is writing to Christians in Rome. He's writing to Christians in Rome, and it's really interesting to me. If you turn over to the book of Romans and you look in chapter 16, Paul is writing an epistle to the Christians in Rome, and he says, by the way, shout out to Rufus and Alexander. Tell them I said hi. Isn't that interesting? Here you have Mark writing to Romans, and he's saying, by the way, Jesus, after he was scourged, which was a terribly violent thing, and again, Mark doesn't give you details, your hands would be tied to a post, your clothes would be stripped off, some Roman lictors would be holding a whip that had fragments of bone and metal and lead to, on the end, and they would lash you. And they, didn't, they weren't like the Jews. They didn't have a limit, like 40 lashes, and that's enough. They could lash you until they were tired. And that bone and those fragments of, of metal would like dig into your skin, and they would pull it out. And historians and doctors tell us that part of your organs would be exposed, your intestines could be visible, your skin would be ripped to ribbons. See, Mark doesn't tell you any of that, but you can Google it and find it out. And Mark tells us after they did that, then they made Jesus carry his cross outside the city. But you know what? He couldn't do it. In his humanity, he couldn't do it. He was too weak. He didn't have any energy. He was bleeding. He lost strength. And so they had to press into service a man named Simon from Cyrene to carry that cross. And Mark is writing this, and he's saying, and, and, and you know, you guys know him in Rome. You know his father, uh, 
Alexander and his son Rufus, shout out to them. This could, this is, Mark is vetting this for us. He's telling us, this is not just pie in the sky. This is not just, just trust your gut. Wouldn't you want this to be true? This is, this is historical. This really happened in time and in space. God busted through time and space, and this happened in history, and it can be verified. And I love that. Because I'm a doubter. I'm a skeptic by nature. Maybe you are too. Maybe you didn't see this in this passage, and this strengthens and builds on your faith. That the Bible welcomes your scrutiny. Listen, guys, the Bible can withstand all the scrutiny you can muster. Throw all the scrutiny you want at it. What you've got to be careful of is when somebody is telling you to build your life on this truth, and then you're asking questions, and they're like, no, 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 no. Just trust. Just trust. No, listen, error demands tolerance. Truth invites scrutiny. Christianity invites your scrutiny. Mark says, test this out. Paul says, test this out. Go talk to all those people Jesus appeared to. You think this was just, uh, you know, people are like, the disciples just wanted this to be true so badly. It, it was like, there was, uh, like they had this illusion, this epiphany. And it's like, did they? And 500 others, so this was psychedelic and 500 other people had happened to them at the same time? I don't think so. No, this is legit. This is historical. This really happened. Thank God it did. Because your faith can be resting on an event that's true. Not one you just wish were true. And listen, more and more today, people are basing their existence, their meaning. They're putting their faith in systems that can't be verified at all. And look, I'm going I'm to say some things this morning. I don't usually do this. Um, I don't want you, what I don't want you to hear is me making fun. I'm not. These are just like stated facts. I dug around a little bit today, and it seems like young adults, especially maybe millennials, more and more, they are open to this idea of new age stuff, horoscopes, what's your sign, um, Wicca, just a whole lot of things that people my age just always ridiculed and rejected out of hand. It seems like younger adults are more and more open to that. The karma. Uh, and look, I'm not being silly here. I, I talked to a dude in my living room that was fixing my cable a couple years ago. I'm talking to him about Christianity. He goes, yeah, you know, well, you know, the Bible, it was written by men. You know, if you can really test it. And I'm like, well, okay, we can talk about that. I know a little bit about that. I went to seminary and he was like, yeah, yeah I don't know, man. And he said, but you know what, dude? He said, that Area 51 stuff, I'm, I'm, I'm dead serious. We talked about aliens. We talked about mermaids. We talked about Bigfoot. In my living room, he's basic. And by the way, what I asked him at the end was, I'm like, can I just ask you a question, man? He said, yeah. I said, you're really passionate about this stuff. I'm like, what if I could offer you proof that Bigfoot is real? He said, do you have pictures? I said, no, no, I don't have any, I don't have any pictures. I, I am from Arkansas and there is that. It seems like he's been spotted more there than anywhere else, but I digress. I said, but what if I could prove to you that he is real? So what, man? <laughs> so what? He said, bro, that changes everything. I'm like, what? It changes nothing. <laughs> it changes nothing. And what if you, what if they really did find a UFO and an alien inside it? What does that change? He said, we're not, then we're not alone. I'm like, we're not alone now. We're not alone now. God's with us. But it's just interesting to me how strongly that guy and vehemently he argued about those things. And uh, there's a young man in my life that I talk to periodically, and he wouldn't call it karma. He he believes that he can channel the energy in the universe. And he's a big gambler too. And he is always wanting the universe to be in his favor. And he'll do things. He'll pick up garbage on the side of the road. He'll do an, a random act of kindness so that the universe is on his side. And so when he gambles, uh, you know, luck or whatever, lady luck will strike. I mean, he believes these things. He, he argues these things. He's sincere. 
And I don't make fun of it. We have real legitimate talks about it. I'm like, bro, so, so the universe has a, has a moral and ethical code? He said, absolutely. I'm like, can I ask you a question, man? How do you know this? Is there, he said, man, I just, feel, I just know it. He said, I've seen it when I've gambled. I'm like, all right, well, man, how's that working for you? You know what I mean? I mean, have you struck it, have you struck it rich yet? Have you figured out what the universe wants from you? Because, you know, my faith is based on an event and it's placed on a person and I know exactly what they want, what they did and what's expected of me and how it should change and shape my life. I mean, you can trust in star alignments and seasons. And by the way, I mean, how can the stars really help you anyway? The Bible says all creation groans. Stars fall, don't they? Stars shoot. They're damaged too. They can't redeem us. They can't help us. Even if they could give you some guidance, just to say, even some people take the magi and the wise men and they follow the star and they're like, see, the Bible endorses. Ah, you've got to be careful with that. I don't know that that's a blanket endorsement of horoscopes and... Uh, with all creation groans, the Bible says our, our, our faith has to be centered on a person and an event that culminated their, their mission, and it's the cross. And it's legit. We can verify that. Oh, I had a lot more. How about this? Just, just take Scientology, for example. Now, if anybody came in here today and you're a Scientologist, I'm not mocking you, I'm not ridiculing you, but I really do want you to know what it is you're supposed to believe from your founder. L. Ron Hubbard in 1952, by the way, he was a science fiction writer, and he also wrote the system of belief that Scientologists adhere to. He was a science fiction writer, that's, that's probably important, and it turns out later he was addicted to psychedelic drugs and was talking to a crazy person when he got this revelation that he wrote down. Um, but Scientology is a system of beliefs and practices that a science fiction writer wrote in 1952, and it says that all humans are immortal, okay? They're spiritual beings called thetans that are trapped in physical bodies. And these thetans have had innumerable past lives, and the lives preceding their arrival on planet Earth were lived in extraterrestrial cultures. And you're now trapped in a body. So if you're a Scientologist, you believe that you are an alien spirit trapped in a human body and that Scientology wants to help you get untrapped and get free and get released. That's literally what Scientologists believe. Now, I want to ask a question. How can you vet that? I mean, that was just written in 1952, and there's school, thousands of people, famous celebrities, they're basing their entire existence on that. And before you say, well, that's nuts, that's crazy, aren't you thankful that the Bible, man, takes a different route <laughs> and, like, shows you this is what Christianity is based on, a historical event that happened in space and time in a city. There's names, there's colors, there's places, there's times of the day, about the third hour. I just love that. This really happened. This really happened. Mark is giving us some visual help here. This is not a fable. This is not a parable. The gospel's good news, and that good news centers on an event that happened in real time. So, um, if you're going to reject Christianity, I would say at least do it with your eyes wide open. Don't just claim that the Bible calls us to blindly believe. It doesn't. The Bible gives us the facts that we need. So, point number two. This is another question that Mark is answering. He may not answer a lot of the questions that people have, but the first question he answered is, was this real? That's history. Second question is, was this a mistake? Was this a mistake? Is this, this deals with the question of prophecy, prophecy. 
Because if you say, okay, this really happened, but I really don't think this was God's plan for the Messiah to come and redeem and rescue his people because it looks like it went south really bad, really fast. Jesus is God's Messiah and he's going to come and he's going to be the king and he's going to usher in this unprecedented time of freedom and glory and human flourishing. But, oh, he died. In fact, he was murdered. He was executed. He was God's Messiah and his people rejected him. This is like an epic fail. And this is like God doing his best, bless his heart, to try and control and, 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 and do, do damage and put out the fires and try and redeem this thing that has just tanked and gone south. Not at all. <laughs> That's not at all what happened. The Bible says that Jesus was the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. From all eternity, this event was planned. This is a perfect fulfillment of prophecy, numerous prophecies. In fact, this would be a point that I should really devote an entire sermon to in the future, but I only wanted it to be one point in this sermon because the last point's the, one of the most important I want to talk about today. But there are so many prophecies that are fulfilled here. One of them is from the, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell and Jesus, uh, God speaking to Adam and Eve and to the snake, remember, there was a promise that was made. This is actually a promise being kept. This is not a mistake that's being managed. This is a promise that's being kept, what you see here, Mark, because God said, um, I will give you an offspring. Okay, your seed will, will bruise. He will, he will smash the serpent's head, remember? But the serpent will bruise his heel. That's the crucifixion. That's Jesus on the cross. His heel is bruised. But Satan has delivered a crushing, defeating blow once and for all. But really interesting in this passage, just look at it real quick. There are a few scriptures. I think I listed some of those if we can. Uh, no, maybe I didn't. I have them here. This is what, the, this is what Mark uh, wants to point out. Just a few details here that are really strategic and interesting. First of all, it says... In verse 19, they were striking his head with a reed, spitting on him, kneeling down, paying homage to them. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his clothes on him. They let him out to crucify him. And then you read about them pressing into service a man named Simon. And then in verse 23, check this out. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And then verse 27 says, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 29, Those who passed by derided him and wagged their tails. Excuse me. My word. <laughs> Wagging their heads, not their tails, because they weren't dogs. They were pe people. <laughs> Wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Now, when Jesus was on the cross, one of the things he said, we're going to look at this next week, was he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus is quoting a psalm, Psalm 22. That's a direct quote. And rabbis back then, when they were teaching their students scripture, they would recite the first verse and then the students would pick up. It would bring to their memory, oh, he's wanting us to think about Psalm 22 right now. And they would begin to quote it out loud with their teacher. So when Jesus was on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All the, all the devoted Jews, the good Jews down there, they would instantly think of that psalm. And there's some things that really stand out in that psalm. I want to read them to you, okay? Here's Psalm 22, verses 6 through 8. 
And it's what we call a messianic psalm. It was talking about exactly what would happen when Jesus died and rose from the grave. It says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. See, not their tails. And they say, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. It's exactly what was happening below the cross with the people ridiculing, mocking, scoffing at Jesus. And then check this out. This is, these are verses 16 through 18 in Psalm 22, Old Testament. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all the bones, all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Isn't that interesting? What were the soldiers doing at the foot of the cross when they ripped Jesus' clothes off? What did they do? They cast lots for them and gambled who would get them. Do you think that's just serendipitous or just some happy accident like Bob Ross, the painter? You know, there's no such thing as a mistake. There's just happy accidents. You know, the cross is just Jesus' happy accident. He's doing damage control. He's trying to redeem this. No, it's not. No, it's not. This is very specific fulfillment of prophecy that was given thousands of years before down to the very letter here's one more verse uh psalm 69 verse 21 they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink jesus is is and mark is calling everyone look this was prophesied this was not an accident this was not a mistake why does that matter because listen if you're not careful you'll view this the same way like poor jesus he was just a victim no, he wasn't. Jesus was a victor, and this was planned, and he has controlled all these events from day one. He knew that Judas would betray him. He prophesied three different times on the road to Jerusalem. Now, the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem as it has been written. They will deliver him over. They will mock him. They will kill him, and on the third day he'll rise. He predicted his own death, the means that he will die, you remember what Jesus said in John's gospel? He said, if the Son of Man be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Do you know if Jesus would have been killed by the Jews, how he would have been killed? How did the Jews kill people? Stoning. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, not if I be cast down. Jesus knew exactly how he would die. On a cross. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. It's, it's astonishing. If you ever want, if you're ever feeling your faith weakened, and you want to just... Check out prophecy. Oh, my word, man. From the birth of Jesus, the place he was born, the means through which he was born, the prophecy about the virgin, all the way through his death and burial and resurrection. It's incredible. Show me another religion that has that. Somebody came to my door the other day and wanted to talk to me, and I wanted to talk to them too. I wanted to talk to them about how come your scriptures have mispredicted the end of the world eight times. I want to talk about that. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't want to talk about that. They wanted to move along and go to somebody else's door. And I said, no, I want to talk about your scriptures. Because if you're going to come to me and tell me to invest my life and, and to trust on, on your scriptures and your writings, there's some seriously glaring errors that we need to talk about. They didn't want to. The Bible can handle all the scrutiny that you can level at it. It can be trusted. God can be trusted. There's a song that I love by Cadman's Call. And uh, it's an album called 40 Acres, and this is called Table for Two. And I'm tempted to sing it. 
because it won't make sense if I don't sing it, so just bear with me here, all right? Um, he says, he's talking about being single and being sad and being lonely and trying to trust God. Does God have a wife for me? Does he not have a wife for me? Maybe some of you have been there. Maybe some of you are there now. That's why this song was especially important to me when I was 25 years old listening to it over and over and over and over and over again, burning the CD up. All right, here we go. He says, well, this day's been crazy. Uh, wait, hang on. Well, this day's been crazy, but everything's happened on schedule. From the rain and the cold to the drink that I spilled on my shirt. Because you knew how you'd save me before I fell dead in the garden. And you knew this day long before you made me out of dirt. I just always love those lyrics because he's saying, I'm lonely and I want a wife. And some crazy things have happened today. I spilled coffee on my shirt and he's... He's celebrating God's sovereignty and his providence and that God controls and orchestrates everything in our life. The good things, the bad things, the crazy things. He's like, this day has been planned from all eternity. Even the drink that I spilt on my shirt, even my singleness right now, that's ordained by you. You are in control of that. Things are not out of your control, God. I just, I love anything that reminds me of that, whether it's a crazy song from Caveman's Call or a passage like this, because I need to be reminded, and maybe you do too, this really happened. Yes, it's historical. This was not a happy accident. It was prophetic. This is prophecy being fulfilled. And the last thing and the most important is, why in the world does this matter? Why does this matter? You know, that's the preacher's job, honestly. And this is the hardest part of my job. It's a lot easier to get up here and read this passage and parse verbs and tell you what etymological meaning words have. The hard part is for a preacher to tell you why this matters. What in the world does this have to do with me? Man, that's hard sometimes. And it's also uh, exciting when you see it, when it comes together. And I think as I'm reading this passage, we haven't even gotten to the death part yet. That's next week. All, all we're talking about this morning is what led up to that. And, and I want to tell you the theme in all of this passage that we just read. You know what it is? It's shame. It's shame. Shame. Jesus is mocked. He's despised. He's ridiculed. This is like a comedy. This is, a, this is like a, a parody to the soldiers. They think this is hilarious. They don't, to, to them, he's just another riffraff criminal that claimed to be some type of Jewish king. And they're bored. And so you know what? They're going to have fun with this, man. They're going to have some locker room humor. So they invite the battalion, the whole group of soldiers, 600 soldiers, they invite them into the palace and they put this mock crown on Jesus with thorns and they clothe him with uh, a scarlet robe, probably an old, worn out, dirty soldier's cloak and they put it on him and they say, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews, just like they would Caesar. This is, sh this is shame. This is shame. Now, I might ask you, like, hey, what's the crucifixion mean to you? If you were just somebody on the street, and you may say, you know what? I've heard that story. The blood, the gore, the violence, Jesus hanging naked on a cross. I get it, and I hear it every Easter, and I don't really want to think about that. That's disgusting. That's gross. So, yeah, I've heard all about it, and I have no idea what it means. But then if I ask them this, I'm like, hey, can I ask you a question? Uh, do you carry any shame around? You know, if we're honest, guys, you know what research says? Everybody has shame. Every single person carries around with them shame. It's everywhere. 
It's everywhere. The word's everywhere in the Bible. Shame is everywhere in the world. One pastor that I, that I love to read said this. He says, the longer I am a pastor, the more convinced I become that every person, regardless of his or her situation, is fighting a hidden battle with shame. Every person, let me read that again. Every person, regardless of his or her situation, is fighting a hidden battle with shame. You know what that pastor's saying? If I'm reading him right, he's a pastor saying every single person at some level is fighting a hidden battle with shame. Shame. Shame, the greatest enemy of God's grace. Shame, the terrifying sense that something is deeply wrong with me. Have you ever experienced shame? Shame and guilt are different. They hang out together, but they're different. Guilt says I did something wrong. Shame says I am something wrong. Guilt says I made a mistake. Shame says I am a mistake. Anybody in here ever fought a hidden battle with shame? I'm in, it's not embarrassment. Embarrassment is like passing gas in public, okay? You get over that, everybody laughs. Or you pick your nose or you show up late and then you laugh about it later. Shame, you never laugh about it. Shame is like a stain that you just cannot remove. I remember whenever I read for the first time The Scarlet Letter. You remember that book? And the lady in the book, Hester Prynne, um, there's a long history to that book. It, it was written by a man that kind of despised and disdained the Puritan era and really misrepresents, I think, reality. But the Puritans in that book made Hester Prynne wear a scarlet letter A for adulterer on her sweater, and she could never take it off. And that was part of her punishment. She had to live in that village and wear that for the rest of her life. And everywhere she went, the eyes were on her. And you know what? Her, her, her sin became shameful, and that became her identity. In fact, she had a daughter. I think the daughter's name is Pearl in the book. And whenever she was home, if she took that sweater off and changed, her daughter wouldn't wouldn't talk to her because in her eyes, her mom was A. She was an adulterer. Shame is a powerful reality in so many people's life. And they try to fight it and they can't. They don't know what to do with it. Shame. You know, the cross is about shame. Rome invented like the most shame-inducing means of uh, of execution the world has ever seen. So horrific that later in the first century, Constantine outlawed it. And he said, this is too much. This is too cruel. This is too horrific. I mean, you are literally dying, lifted up on a pole. And they would choose the most, uh, the most frequently traveled roads to crucify their victims, Romans would. And it was reserved for notorious robbers, for traitors, for rebels, and for runaway slaves. They got crucified up on a cross for everyone to see, and they were naked. You know, a lot of people have nightmares, and you know in their nightmares where they're at? They're in public somewhere, and they're naked, and they can't find their clothes. And sometimes they have to give a speech, too. Those are the things people are most scared of, right? Being naked, being exposed to the whole world for them to see you. You are vulnerable. You're there. You're open. That's, that's like, researchers have said, that's like the epitome of a visual image of shame in the public and you're naked and you're vulnerable and you're hurting and people are looking at you and they're laughing at you and they're rejecting you. Shame is like, I'm unloved, I'm unwanted, I feel rejected, I feel like I don't belong. 
I don't belong, nobody wants me. And I want to ask you, if you put yourself, humanly speaking, in the position of Christ, how must he have felt? Do you know why Mark doesn't focus on the blood and the nails? That was nothing compared to the shame that Jesus faced, being crucified, being rejected, being made fun of. He could have snapped his fingers and everyone's heart would have stopped that were mocking him and ridiculing him, but he didn't. He didn't do that because he was dying for them. <laughs> he was dying for their sins and for your sins and for my sins. For Jesus to hear, away with him, let him be crucified right after Pilate, a Roman authority said he's innocent. I find no crime that this man has committed that's worthy of death. And they said, away with him. We want Barabbas. We want the robber. We want the traitor, the insurrectionist. How shameful, how unwanted and rejected would you have to feel if somebody chose Barabbas over you and all you had ever done was help and heal and teach truth. This whole thing is about shame. Ed Welch wrote a book on shame. It's incredible. Recommend it to you. But he said this. He said, if you talk with people about guilt who are under 30, so find somebody in their 20s or a teenager, talk to them about guilt, you often get blank stares. But if you talk about worthlessness, failure, or shame, those people feel as if you have deciphered the core of their being. For them, shame is arguably the human problem. And shame is not just maybe something you did. Sometimes it's something that was done to you. Abuse, molestation, maybe rape. I mean, shame has an endless, endless list of of what can cause it. And you know what? It crosses boundaries. Whether you're an old person, older, who has to wear a diaper to bed, or whether you're, you're that kid that never get picked for the team at recess. Shame crosses all boundaries. Race, age, culture. Maybe you are the fat kid, the slow kid, the dumb kid, the ugly kid, the poor kid, the smelly kid, the dirty kid. I guarantee you everybody in here has a history. You can trace some type of shame back to you when you were little. Something was said or something was not said. And that follows us all through our life. It's the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel like an outcast. You feel naked. You feel unclean. You feel unwanted. You feel unloved. And Mark says, I can help you with that. <laughs> he didn't answer all of our questions, but he answered this one. What has God done about shame? Oh, he's done something. He's done something, all right. Uh, the slide that was up there earlier, if you're wondering, yeah, you know, that's a lot of people. I don't think that's me. Well, listen, here's a shortcut. Here's a shame detector test, okay? What do you not want somebody to know about you? <laughs> When you fill out the resume, what gives you the heebie-jeebies when you get to it? Your income? Your status? Single, married, divorced? What is it? Your weight? Your rap sheet? Have you ever been arrested for any reason? You're like, oh man, why they got to ask that? Now I got to talk about my DUI, or now I got to talk about I'm a registered sex offender. Guys, I'm telling you right now, shame is one of the biggest human problems that a lot of people don't want to talk about. They carry it around. People have called it the quiet killer. Do you know there was a billionaire when the stock market crashed in 2008? He was a billionaire and he lost billions of dollars. But when it was all said and done, he was still a billionaire. And his wife didn't leave him. His kids still loved him. But you know what the man did? 
He killed himself. He killed himself, still a billionaire with a loving family and all of his assets in place. You know why? Because the pecking order of Wall Street, he got knocked down a few notches and the shame of that like overwhelmed him. And he didn't know what to do with himself. So he ended his life. I never watched this show, but I knew about it. Uh, you know, Ozzy Osbourne, he was the lead singer for... Uh, you didn't know we were going to talk about Ozzy Osbourne today in church, did you? <laughs> He's the lead singer for Black Sabbath, and uh, his wife Sharon and he and his son and daughter, they had a, a reality show on MTV. I guess it spanned a few years, uh, and it was the most watched reality show ever on MTV. And here, he's living his life with his whole family on display. And his daughter, Kelly Osborne, uh, she disappeared from the public eye for an extended season. And then in 2010, she reappeared during Fashion Week with a new look and a new body. She had lost an amazing 42 pounds, which caused her new and curvy figure to become a major headline. And a journalist asked her about what motivated her to lose so much weight, and she told the journalist that it was because... She hated what she saw every time she looked in the mirror because Kelly Osborne measured her value in comparison to other women and she was undone by the comparisons. Why don't I look like this girl or that girl? She would ask herself. But her shame was not only internal, it was also reinforced externally by a culture that places so much value absurdly on how thin you are and how being full-bodied is worthless. And then she said this. This is what struck me with this story. She said, I took more hell from people for being fat than I ever did for being an absolutely raging drug addict who took up to 50 Vicodins a day. Isn't that interesting? The power of shame. The power. It's a wonder she didn't die from an overdose. Shame is like the quiet killer is what people call it. And it strikes at the core of our being. And what did Jesus do about shame? You know, I talked to a young lady not long ago, and she goes to a Christian school, and she was telling me that one of the teachers there, one of their favorite things to say is, shame on you. Have you ever heard that? Man, that hurt. Those are powerful words right there. You better be, parents, this is just an aside. Be really careful saying that to your kids. Shame on you. Shame on you. You know what Jesus never said? That. Ever. He never said that. In fact, he said, those who believe in me, they will what? Never be ashamed. That's from Isaiah. It's quoted four times in the Bible. It says that another place in Hebrews, he's not ashamed to be called our God. In another place, he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus is not ashamed of us. You know why? Because he took your shame. He took your shame. In fact, Jesus never said, shame on you. You know what he said? He said, shame off you. Shame off you. Because we carry shame around and we can't do anything about it. We can't rub it out. We can't run from it. And so often it becomes our identity. And it crushes us and it destroys us. And we feel unloved and unvaluable, unaccepted, unwelcome. Just like Jesus did. Naked, open, vulnerable. That's like our worst nightmare. And Jesus said, why don't we trade places? Because all of this really is, we could, could have continued last week. The great exchange. This is Jesus being the sin bearer and being the shame bearer for you. You know, most people spend their entire life running from shame as fast as they can and they can never outrun it. 
It always catches them with a resume when they're 70, right? And they change jobs, and there it is again. You have any health defects? Anybody in your family ever had blank, blank, blank? You just can't run away from it, right? You know what Jesus did? You don't want to know how crazy the cross is? You know what Jesus did? He ran toward shame as fast as he could. His whole life was going in that direction. In fact, there's a verse in, in Hebrews 12. It's so powerful. If we have it, guys, you can put it up there. It's talking about Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. And it says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. And what's that next line say? Despise the shame. Despise the shame. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I looked up that word um, despise because I really wanted to get like, what does this mean? That Jesus is just, ah. You know what it means? It means to consider something less valuable when compared with something else. So Satan wanted to use shame to deter Jesus from his mission. And Jesus looked at that shame, and you know what he said? He said, compared with the joy set before me, the mission that I have, and the freedom that it's going to offer all of these people who are trapped in shame and guilt and fear, that's nothing. That's nothing. I'll endure that. I'll endure that for them. I despise you, shame. I despise you. You're nothing. We run from it. He ran to it. There's a lady. She did a, uh, she did a series of talks on shame that are famous on YouTube. And I've been told she's a Christian. I don't know. Brene Brown. Um, sometimes it's hard to verify, you know, those things. But she said something that got so close to like a Christian affirmation. Check this out. She said, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. She says, if you put shame in a Petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. She says, the two most powerful words when we're struggling with shame are me too. Do you hear what she's saying? She's saying, if you're struggling with shame... What you most need from somebody else, the most powerful thing is for somebody to come alongside of you and say, me too, I'm empathetic, I get, I get this, and we can both be ashamed together. Um, she got close, <laughs> she got close. There's, there's two words that are more powerful than me too. Does anybody, anybody want to guess what they are? Me instead, me instead. Because me too can't take your shame away. All it can do is commiserate with you. No, I need, I need a substitute is what I need. Is that what you need? You need somebody to take your shame? You can't do anything with shame. You can't rub it out. Can't do it. You need somebody to come and take it. It's like in the Old Testament, the priest would take a scapegoat. They would lay their hands on it and they would send it away from the camp. Away. Carry the sin. Carry the guilt. Carry the burden, the stain, the condemnation, and the shame away outside the camp. You know where Jesus went to be crucified? Really interesting. Where did he go? outside the camp. He was kicked out. He was banished from his city. That was his city. And he was crucified between two thieves. You know, at the end of this story, everybody has made fun of Jesus. Have you ever read how painful crucifixion is? How you would be, well, I can't even imagine what would be going through the mind of a person who was being crucified. But you know what's so interesting to me? You want to know how powerful the scorn and the, and, and the derision, and the mockery and the shame were for Jesus? Check this out. Look at this last verse. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. What the heck? What in the heck is going on here? This is Jesus taking the shame you and I deserve. Because guys, truth be known, we deserve shame. Ah, it may be a hard pill to swallow, but you know what? We've rejected God. We have gone our own way. All of us have turned aside to our own way. The Bible says, what does that deserve? That Jesus could have came and pointed at us and said, shame on you. Shame on you. I created you to glorify me and to live a life that's pleasing to me. And you've gone your own way. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You're going to be punished out in front of everybody, naked, bloody, at your most vulnerable point, and the whole world's going to see it. But he didn't do that. He didn't say shame on you. He said shame off you. How about we, we trade places and I do this on your behalf? I just love that. In the very beginning of the Bible, you've got a man and a woman and they sin against God. And the Bible says, what happens next? They were naked, and they were afraid, and they were ashamed, and they ran and they hid. Man, how Jesus reversed that. Jesus is on the cross, and he's naked, and he's bloody, and he is being shamed. You know what, Jesus is taking the penalty for our sin and all the consequences that you and I deserve. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So, was this real? Yes, it was real. Was this planned? Absolutely, from all eternity. And I forgot the last question, but it was important. <laughs> Does it matter? You better believe it matters. Who doesn't struggle with shame? You don't have to struggle anymore, friend. Lay it down at the feet of Christ because Christ has taken your shame and your burden and your condemnation. He's traded places with you. And now, you don't have anything to be ashamed of. You don't have to worry about the skeletons in the closet. Jesus knows the worst things about you that you've never told another human being before, and he loves you anyway. Jesus has got the real dirt on you. He's got the things you wouldn't share with your closest ally. He knows it. He's greater than our heart, and he knows all things. And he still loves us, and he still says, I'm not going anywhere. None of this shocks me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you died in our place and you took all the consequences for our sin, the guilt, the condemnation, the punishment, the penalty, the stain, the stain and the shame so that we don't have to carry that, Lord. What a loving God you are. You could have just took the penalty of our sin, left the shame on us, but Lord, you love us too much to do that. You don't want our identity to rest in something that, that we did or something that was done to us. You want our entire identity and, and meaning and purpose and value and existence and worth to rest on something you did for us, Lord. You took our place. We, we get your perfect, spotless life. And you took our curse. You became a curse. Something hideous, something ugly, ugly, something condemned so that we could stand perfect in Christ. Thank you for that good news today. May it, seek, may it seep down into the unevangelized parts of our heart. And if there's anyone here, Lord, that has just been moved or touched by this message and they just want to pray with somebody or they want to cry with somebody, I pray they would take this time to just reflect as our band comes and plays. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.